Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits that can make you happier. Here on the show today, we have Tom Sterner. He's the author of The Practicing Mind, Fully Engaged. And most recently, it's just a thought, emotional freedom from deliberate thinking. This is something I really need, everyone. The CEO and Practicing Mind Institute, Sterner is an on-demand speaker and coach. He works with high performers, groups and individuals and athletes. And he's also, prior to writing his you know, the best-selling book, he, Sterner has studied Eastern and Western philosophy and modern sports psychology. And little, you know, a little tidbit has trained as a jazz pianist. And he is joining us today from Delaware. Um, welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So obviously, you know, I would like to assume that you chose the the habit today, everyone, of deliberate thinking because of this work that you've done. So if you could tell us how you got to to a place where you were writing a book about deliberate thinking. Well, that's the this latest book is just a thought is the third in what I'll call a trilogy. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my journey began when I was a child. I was a very undisciplined person, but very creative. So I had a lot of great ideas. And then whether that was learning to play the piano, which I quit at, at least once. Um, I eventually did go on to, to be a, a fairly good musician. But my point was, is that I had these ideas I would get excited about, and then I would burn up the initial intensity pretty quickly. And then I was just left with who I was, which was this highly undisciplined person. <clears throat> the thing that saved me was that I was what I'll call observer oriented naturally. I'm not really sure how they came about, but it's generally a state that you reach through a lot of meditation. And because of that, uh, even at a young age, I could see that <clears throat> I was never going to fulfill my potential. And I could see that I was acting out behaviors that uh, were not serving me. Um, so uh, by the time I was in high school, I guess my, by the time I graduated high school, I realized that this is, this can't go on. Um, it's not sustainable. So I need to change it. I didn't have the faintest idea how to. I mean, I'd had very limited education in terms of philosophies and sciences, medical or mindful sciences. And when I was in college, a guy gave me a book that was Philosophies of the World. And that's what started me on the path, because I began studying all the Eastern thought and applying things like what I call Zen mind, which is really like a present moment functioning. And it it just completely changed my life. It changed who I was. Within a few years, people were saying I was the most disciplined person they knew, which I thought was kind of comical because I didn't see I didn't see myself differently. But I when I started to look at everything I was accomplishing, I realized that something had changed. And that just went into the neurosciences and um, heart math and um, sports psychology. And I ended up, uh, you know, writing first The Practicing Mind, which really focused on learning what it feels like to be in the present moment and how to get into it when you're not. Um, this latest book, It's Just a Thought, is really come from the last couple of years. And much of the information wasn't around when I wrote The Practicing Mind and then Fully Engaged. But we really do have a very strong handle on um, where our thoughts come from. Most of us spend the day being thought uh, as opposed to being the thinker of our thoughts. We think we're the thinker of our thoughts, but <clears throat> we're not. In fact, 
a story I've told many times is I had a CEO one time that I was working with and we were having a, this conversation and he said he didn't buy into that modality. He said, I think that I, I think all of my thoughts, I choose my thoughts, et cetera. <clears throat> and when he finished making this comment, I told him to shut up and sit there until I told him to talk. And then he was offended. And I said, you see, <laughs> you weren't, you didn't make a choice to be offended. You were just offended. And I said, and the reason, and I said, and you were in your, offense um, and acting it out. And I said, um, what happened there was that uh, you surrendered your deliberate thinking to your subconscious, which is where we spend about 95% of our day. <clears throat> and, right. and so, you know, I made a comment that would stimulate your subconscious mind to go get a response that it thought was appropriate for what I had talked to you, what I had said to you in the tone of voice I had talked to you. And it pulled it off the hard drive and played it and you were in it. And um, I said, there was no choice making, no decision making at all. And he was, it was an awakening moment for him. I mean, he said like, yeah, I, I get it. He said, now I get it. <clears throat> he said, that is how it goes through my day. So it's very important to understand. And that's what the, this book is about is how much we've learned about where our thoughts come from, whether we're creating them or we're living them. We're either in the thought or we're watching the thought. And how do you get to where, <clears throat> How do you get outside of that so that you can reprogram the subconscious mind uh, when you notice, because when, when you're the observer, you're the noticer of what thoughts are being run across the screen and you become the gatekeeper more or less and decide which thoughts are going to come through and which thoughts aren't. And that's freedom as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it definitely is, you know, you, freedom from your mind, of course. And this is obviously very Eckhart Tolle combined with uh, one of my favorite human beings, Dr. Andrew Huberman, the neuroscience of all of this sort of amalgamation. So I love this work. And I want to ask you, um, what's the relationship between emotions and thought? Because, you know, it's typically thought, pun intended, that our, emotion, that our emotions come from our thoughts. Um, but I've been reading some literature lately that talks about the somatic nature of our emotions, and those aren't happening in the brain. So what's your viewpoint on that? Well, I would have to for that I'd have to re refer to heart math because if you look at heart math, which is they're about three and a half decades into this research, some time ago, I'm going to guess I, I may be wrong in this, but around the early 2000s, the neurocardiologist discovered that the heart has a brain, uh, mm -hmm. it has its own nervous system, its own memory, and that there is a constant communication traffic between the heart and the brain and the heart does most of the talking it's really uh, i think it's about 75 to 80 percent of the communication is the heart talking to the brain rather than the other way around we tend to think think of the, the brain as like the center of our consciousness but it really isn't it's it's the heart and the heart functions on emotions you know the heart functions yeah. on feelings in the um <clears throat> and so it sends this information to the brain and the brain has to interpret that and then release the hormones that, um, you know, it creates a thought that goes with that. And, and then the hormones that are released with that, that correlate to the, the thought. I think it's important for people to understand that this is this all the, the subconscious mind and the heart are very interrelated and the subconscious mind's um, language is feelings. It's not so much words, it's feelings. In other words, it looks at uh, something happens and you get a feeling. You're happy, you're sad, you're angry, you're anxious. And the subconscious mind is constantly in a recording mode. It doesn't have any cognitive thinking ability. It doesn't have a sense of humor. It's just watching and recording. 
And we need that. But that's why we don't have to learn how to button our shirt every day and, you know, don't touch a hot stove. So but what it does is it takes that the feeling that is that is correlated to the the scenario that's outside of you. And it, it basically creates a habit of behavior because it figures that, well, when this happens, this is the feeling that should be created. Right. And so that's what's installed. And that's what we're doing 95% of the day. We're not actually choosing how to think. We're just actually running programs. And now we don't have to live that way. It's just that, um, you know, it's like the interesting thing about empirical science is that with empirical science, it um, like as opposed to the East, you know, in the East, we would call these people mystics. You know what we call right. them mystics. They never call themselves mystics and we just call them that. But their mode of scientific ex- exploration has just been going within using themselves, whereas, you know, we use a lot of technology. And in the West, we're more comfortable when something can be proven empirically through technology. But that means that we have to wait for the technology be technology to be invented to prove certain things like you can't prove there's a bacteria if you don't have a microscope, like, you know, where you can look through a, a slide. So this is what happens is that, you know, now we're being a, we're able to look at this correlation um, in the mind and how it all works, which means that now that we understand it, we feel in the West, we feel comfortable investing into the mechanisms of changing it because it's it, it's just all it's right there like you know we can look at it we have the data we have mri uh you know images and all this other stuff so i i think it's a very exciting time for several reasons one is we have the control to change the way we interpret situations and experience situations but we, we also are tasked to take the responsibility of that because we now know through heart math that the heart actually creates an electromagnetic field and like a smartphone a smartphone creates an electromagnetic wave and in that wave it carries information you know your phone conversation your pictures or whatever that are going back and forth well the heart <clears throat> it creates an electromagnetic field outside of you and they're not really sure how far that goes because they're limited by the technology but the point is is that your neurosystem is designed to be able to communicate with that. So yours a minor communicating all the time. And so because of that, um, we are putting, we're putting electromagnetic thought energy and emotion out into the world and the, the consciousness of the whole world. And uh, so if we're all angry, then the world's going to be angry. You know, um, if we're all happy, then the world's going to be happy. If we're all sick and worried about being sick, then the whole world's going to be. So we really need to understand that we are, a cog in the wheel um, and a very important ingredient into the direction that the world takes. Yeah. Um, what's coming up for me is this concept of the pain body, the collective pain body that Eckhart totally writes about <laughs> and, and how we can influence the world. And I just wanted to move topics a little bit. It's the same topic, but it's just a different niche is rumination. So rumination is something that I'm a coach as you are. And many people come to me because they have the same thought on loop. It might be a different color of the same thought, but basically they can't get it out of their head. So given your work, what would you suggest for listeners who are stuck in rumination? Well, the first thing to do is to get outside of the process of rumination um, because you can't change it if you're in it. Like and that's why I said there's a diff- there is a difference between being in your thoughts and watching your thoughts. Now, when you learn to um, now, how do you get there? Well, you have to have a. The only way that I know that has ever worked that I've ever found is some a very simple 
meditation practice, like uh, 10 minutes a day of of a meditation practice. And when I say meditation, I don't want guided meditations. There's nothing wrong with them, but they ask you to think. And what I call it in my in my work is thought awareness training. I want you to be aware of what it feels like to to have the perspective of I'm not my thoughts. I some thoughts I create, but most of the thoughts happen to me. And so if I'm going to change them, I have to be in that perspective where I'm noticing what thoughts are happening to me, which is what rumination is. I mean, it's, it's just running. Now, once you get to that place, then you have the, the, I will, what I'll say, the key to the prison door. I mean, that is what gives you the opportunity and the privilege to change the the thought that is ruminating. That The second thing is to understand that that thought is a habit. I mean, that's what that's exactly what it is. It's a habit. And so when I what I do with people is I ask them, well, if when you have that thought, if you could um, if you could do anything you wanted, if you could be any person you wanted, you know, what would that be when you're like if you're having an anxious thought or an angry thought? What would that be? Most of almost always they have no idea because they've never thought about that. What they've thought about is they're in the thought. They're in the rumination thing, (laughs) you know, and and so no one ever asks us what we actually know. And I I said, like, you know, if you don't have any idea of like, well, how would you like to react to that thought? Like, what would you like to replace that thought with? These are questions that when you ask people, they just look at you because they've never actually ventured into that. So I tell them, I want you to sit down and write down, like, just take an example. We'll just use one example and then we'll apply it to other things. But just take an example of one type of a scenario that creates a thought or a thought that ruminate that you ruminate over that is upsetting. And then I want you to write down and I want you to th- just think about it because thinking is very abstract and all thoughts just kind of run around. But you have to have a level of clarity to be able to pin it out. Um, and I want you not a whole page. I want you to know, like, well, when this thought happens, I would like to be this person or I would like to f- have this feeling. I want you to know what it is. It's I want you to be very, very firm and clear on that. You know, it's really very much like I've told people that, you know, I have a, I'm a pilot. And when you fly, you don't wait for bad situations to happen and then get the pilot operating handbook out and start flipping through it to figure out what to do. You know, if the engine quits, you're going to do this, A, B, C, D, and E. You know, and this is why you don't want to be reacting. You want to be responding. That's why why we call them first responders. We don't call them first reactors, you know, because they already know that when this happens, this is a difficult situation. It has a lot of momentum because it has repeated itself over and over and over again. So it's got a lot of inertia and it has a lot of force. And for you to get ahead of that um, and stop it, you need a, you need a procedure. Yeah. So um, so that's why I'm saying, what is what does that look like? What are you going to go to? What are you going to what's your target like when that happens? And then the next thing is I want a rescue mantra. I want someone mm-hmm. to say um, when that rumination thought happens, I want you to have a saying that you immediately go to to cut off the flow so that um, and it could be something like for me, it's like this is when the fun starts. It's like, you know, it can be something like that that's lighthearted, but just so that you recognize that this is what I've been waiting for. You know, it's like I tell them you can't when you are fighting with that, you're up against your threshold. And you're all that is that feeling of struggle. um, We call it we, we give we give it all these names, the names tend to color what we think it is. But what is struggle? Struggle is just data. It's just information that is telling you you haven't mastered what you're facing right now. That's all it's telling you. It's just information. And um, 
you can interpret that as I'm not good at that, all this sort of stuff. But that's all it is. It's just information telling you this is this is where your skill level is right now. You're right up against it and you can't get better at this unless you're up against it. You know, it's like when you start taking piano lessons, the very first day you're learning where the notes are and the keys and all that sort of stuff. Three years later, you're playing you know, some maybe it's a list piece or, you know, Beethoven piece or whatever. Um, and you're up against your threshold. If you look at the feeling inside, well, what was the feeling on the first day? I'm struggling. I, I don't understand this stuff. I'm struggling. What's it feel like three years later when you're when you're playing something you can't play yet? Like um, you're up against your threshold and the feeling inside of you is the same. I'm not very good. I can't do this. But if you look at the wake behind the boat, you're not back there. You know, you're way past that. You know, mm-hmm. you have progressed all this way. So it's really important, you know, to me that when when people get into this, they under they interpret the situation differently. That's why there's a, a chapter in the, the book called Interpretation Creates Your Experience. Okay. And it will then impact your performance in the um in the situation. Because um the way that you interpret the if you interpret that as, um, oh my, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. That's one interpretation, and that's your experience. If you interpret it as, and I see this with pro golfers, you know, like where they got to make this putt to win, and when they interview them later, they go, "This, that's what I trained for." Were you nervous? Absolutely, I was. I loved it. Absolutely loved it because that's I knew that that's what I came here for. This is mm-hmm. what I practiced for. It's to get myself in this situation and to be able to, um, to overcome the fears and all that sort of stuff. So, if your interpretation when that happens is, "Here's my." opportunity to end this programming you know it showed up and i needed for it to show up i can't end it unless i'm in the process of ending it mm-hmm. and i can't be there unless it's happening so when you start to interpret it differently it becomes a challenge a game um and you just stop judging you know you stop mm-hmm. judging yourself because there is no book that says you should be this good at this or you know i, I had a woman one time that called me up and she happened to be local. It was un- unusual. And she wanted to meet. So we met for coffee. And she was a prospective client. And she, I asked her what she was struggling with. And she was, I think, around 50 years old. She had been dating a guy for a number of years. And they had broke, broken up. And and it was six months since they broke up. And I said, um, I said so um, where's the problem? And she said, well, I'm not over him as much as I should be. And I said, okay. I said, so you've read the book. And she said, what book are you talking about? I said, you know, the book. And she said, no, I don't know the book. I said, well, the book, you look up in the book and, it, and you know, you put your age, your partner's age, how long you went out, where you live, <laughs> like, and, and then, you know, and it had, like as a spreadsheet, you know, like a graph, like, you know, an, uh, an XYZ thing. And you go across there and it will tell you that it will take you, you know, nine months, so many hours, so many minutes, so many seconds to be over the person. And she said, there's no book like that. And I said, yeah, but you're acting like there is. I said, you know, it's not... Um, you're not looking at, I said, are you more over him than you were the day you broke up? And she said, yeah. And I said, so you're looking at the final, which is probably you run into him in the grocery store and you have absolutely zero feeling for him. And she goes, yeah. I said, well, there is no thing that says it has to take this long or you're overdue. What's taking you so long? I said, like, there is nothing like that. You just apply yourself every day and enjoy the process and stop judging where you are because your judging is always going to be based. It's always going to be relative like the piano player. It's always going to be relative to your skill level. This this piano player now is playing Mozart, but they're judging their skill level based on that. They're not judging their skill level based on the first day of their their very first lesson because that's way they're way past that they've forgotten all about that so your interpretation has everything to do with how you experience growth 
And if you stop connecting to um, this fictitious place out in front of you, that um, once you get there, you're going to be completely self-realized and your life is going to be happy. You know, I think that this feeling of incompleteness that we all have is something we're supposed to have. It's not something we misuse it uh, and we misinterpret it because what we do is we think, well, if I just if I get another 20 grand a year, you know, or I meet this person or I have this bigger house or this, I'm driving this car, this feeling inside of me is going to go away. And no, it isn't going to go away because it's supposed to be there. That's yeah. the reason we have Stradivarius violins and the Sistine Chapel and technology and all this stuff. It's because there's a part of us that is always telling us we can be more. Yeah. We can and be I kind more. of think of that as like a longing, right? We all yeah. have- and you can be, it can come out through creative pursuits like the 16 Chapel or, or you know, playing music. But and it can also be quite destructive. Our longings, um, if we let. Well, it, yes, if you misinterpret them. Yes, like mm-hmm. um, if you realize that um, the reason that you have, um, when these things happen to us, if your interpretation is this is my opportunity to grow. Um, and when I master this situation, and I can tell you, I've mastered many situations, certainly not all of them, but I've mastered many situations that used to really upset me and they don't anymore, you know, but I had to go through that process. I think the difference is when I'm in the process of it, I don't judge myself and I don't, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel horrible, you know, like, I just feel like I'm in this process of doing this, you know? And so when I, when I do it, I'm like, I'm grateful you know, that I have the opportunity to do that. And that, and it's just an interpretation and not to understand that what we're talking about here is nothing more than a skill. That we, all, we all learn skills our whole life. Our, everything in our life is a skill from learning to walk, to being in a relationship, to dealing with an angry person. They're all skills. And we all start any skill from no skill. <laughs> and then, yeah. then we're on this line, you know, of mastery. Yeah. And we can interpret that time that we're in that line as a horrible experience or as I'm right where I'm supposed to be at this point in time, mm-hmm. you know, for the amount of time that I put in this and stop, stop um, being attached to this idea that I'm going to get to some place where um, I'm going to feel fully, you know, fully realized. I mean, you know, it's just, there are things that we, this is part of our life. It's part of the practice of life and it should be cherished. Uh, we never get to be, fully realized. And I don't think anybody wants to be, I, you know, like, um, I, because yeah, it just means there's infinite growth. Like, that um, was one of my questions for you, Tom, is that, you know, are you completely unbothered by everything and everyone? For the most part? Yeah. Especially, you know, I mean, I came from a household where my mother was very much a, a worry wart and everybody said that as long as I was here, there'd be a part of her here, you know, and I am not a worry wart at all. Like, um, and I'm always like my daughter say, you're the family therapist, you know, like I'm always calming people down. I'm always saying, let's just take another look at this because that's how I'm experiencing it. Like I'm not experiencing it. Like, um, my hair's on fire. And, um, <clears throat> so I can say that I use, everything I talk about every day in life. And and that doesn't mean I've mastered it completely. You know, like I remember one time my older daughter was over here and I ha- my first book happened to me on the kitchen table and we were sitting there having this conversation. Somehow I got on a rant and um, and she slid my book in front of me. She said, I think you need to read chapter two again, dad. Like, uh, <laughs> so um, the prescription. that's yeah. right. Like, um, but I'll just tell this really short story about, you know, when I was in piano technology for almost 30 years, uh, I worked for, I was a very high level concert techn- uh, technician and I worked for the best pianist in the world. And um, 
and there was a lot of weight on my shoulders to produce. And I had a scenario where um, a very, very famous pianist was coming in. I didn't know it at the time that the person had an alcohol problem. So they were very uh, subject to mood swings and things like that. The person was the piano had been underneath of the stage, uh, it, which was not climate controlled. So it was just cacophonious. It, it, the touch was all uneven. The piano was horribly out of tune. He was not supposed to see the piano until I had about four or five hours on it. But he came over. He was supposed to come over about five o'clock on Saturday mm -hmm. afternoon. The show was that night. He came over in the morning and there was a young stagehand there who didn't know any better and let him in. Well, he sat on the piano and he was just outraged. And um, so I get this phone call from this stagehand. The guy's screaming in the background. I'm a jerk and all these things. And, and this young kid's like, well, what do I do? I said, well, tell him I'm coming in. I'll come in now. I wasn't supposed to because it was nine o'clock in the morning. I said, but I'll come in now. So when I left my house, my first impulse, which only lasted for a second, was I was irritated with this kid for letting him in because he had created a hole that was going to be very difficult for me to climb out of. Um, this guy hated the piano. He hated me. He thought I was incompetent, all these things. And I was going to have to turn that all the way around. But immediately, just because of everything I've written about, I thought what I posed the question that I said earlier, if I could be any person in this situation what would that look like? What do I want? What can I control? What can I not control? Let's focus on what I can control. And I thought what I can control is whether this guy has access to my inner peace. That's mm. what I have control over. I said, I, um, I am not going to surrender my inner peace to him. I know he's going to insult me. I know he's going to be angry. He's going to have all that energy coming out of him. And that's coming from his own insecurities. But I am the gatekeeper and uh, of myself. And I am not going to surrender that to him. And that's where my focus is going to be the whole time. When he's yelling at me, I'm going to be monitoring my inner peace. And I'm not going to let him in there. So when I got to the place, um, I got on the stage and he was down the the, uh, the way. Uh, the, his dressing room. And I started to work on the piano and then here he comes and he's got, he's breathing fire and every, just like I expected. And I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I do understand this man. He's playing by himself. There's no orchestra with him. And he has to walk out on this stage and play this piano. And um, he has, and he isn't in control of the piano. Right. You know, I'm know the one who's creating that. Yeah. Right. So, but he has no control over that. And so he's at my mercy. So I could understand that. And so, when he came across, I thought, I'm going to strike the first blow here. Um, so I introduced myself and I apologized to him that somebody of his level, uh, with all the work he's done in his life, should have to tolerate this instrument in its present state. And I said, that was never supposed to happen. You were supposed to come in later. I was supposed to be on this piano for five hours. I said, but regardless, I said, I want you to know, I understand your position. I said, you're going to walk out on that stage. And if this piano doesn't get out of your way, and allow you to interpret the music in a very transparent way, the people in the audience aren't going to know it's the piano's fault. They're going to think it's yours. Yeah, and right. you're going to read bad reviews, and the people are going to think you didn't play well, and all the stuff which was out of your control. Well, as I'm saying this to this guy, uh, you could see the anger melting you know, from him. because, And he's, he looked at me, and he said, well, what, what did you say your name was? And I said, Tom. And he said, Tom, no one has ever talked to me like no. this. He said, um, I'm going to go down in the green room in the green room for a while. He goes, you do your job. He said, I'm fine with that. So I, I did the job and I went down to get him and to have him come up. And he goes, I don't need to. 
I really don't need to. He said, I trust you. You get it. Like, um, so that, so he had this amazing performance, all these accolades, but that wasn't the end of the story. Like two years later, he came back to a different venue and he's, uh, I got called to do that venue too. And I walked into the theater and he was up on the stage and I could see him playing. And as he was playing, he turned and he looked down the row and he saw me and he, and he stopped. He said, Tom, he remembered me. He said, Tom, I'm so relieved. It's you who is going to work on the piano. He said, like, I was thinking that the whole time I was here. I hope, I hope, I hope it's Tom. And so when I walked up to the stage, I'm down on the floor, but I said, well, how's the piano? He goes, "Eh, it's, it's okay. He said, You'll do your thing and I'll be fine. And then he said, are you coming to the show? I said, well, I'd love to, but I don't have a ticket. I'll get you a ticket. He said, like, um, I'd love to see you there. So my point is, is that right in the beginning of that whole scenario, it could have gone in a numerous different ways. So my interpretation is what changed it. We were almost friends. Like, you know, that was my interpretation. And, And the audience got this amazing performance or two amazing performances. If I had started off like, um, in an arbitrary way with him, he would have gone down that path. He'd have been angry. I would have ruined my day. I'd have been angry. The whole thing would have been completely different. All it took was for me to say, if I can handle this any way I want, what does that look like? And what is my interpretation going to be? And all those things. And it gave me freedom. I was in control and I, I was in control of him without him even knowing it. And, um, you know, and of the situation and it, it's worth it. It's worth the effort. I guess. Yeah, yeah, no. What's coming up for me is this idea of, if we can extend understanding to others, then we protect our inner peace and therefore have a positive effect on the world. Right? Absolutely. That's beautiful. I mean, you that's know, how we all want to show up, I think. Yeah. And I think we want to be, we want our head to be a nice place to spend our day. Exactly. And, um, and you know, those, the things like the ruminating, in my experience for myself, they just dissolve, you know, because so much of that comes from stress and lack of awareness because you're not, a rumination is not deliberate thinking. It's the opposite of it. it is, like yeah. you're, you're not controlling it at all. You're just being controlled. That's why I, I tell people, well, ask yourself during the day when you have that, ask yourself, am I thinking or am I being thought? Because that's mm. what's happening. You're being thought. You're not thinking. And you're just letting yourself be thought. Um, and ask yourself, if I could stop this thought right now, if I could end it right now, would I choose to do that? And when I ask people that, they go, yeah. And I said, well, that's because you're not the thought. You know, yes. you're, the thought is this happening to you. And so because it's you're not the thought and it's happening to you, you do have control over it. You just haven't exercised it because you didn't you weren't aware that you could. So it's just a skill. Yeah, I love this skill. And it's such a remarkable gift that we all have. And we've reached the end of the show. But I want you to let everyone know where can they buy your book if they want you to speak, if they want to coach with you. How can they find you? Uh, the, Well, the books are because it was just released, the, just the latest one was just released in end of February. I, I think it'll be a while for they're in niche stores. Um, but in terms of all the major places like Amazon and, um, you know, Barnes and Noble, those places all have the book. And as far as getting a hold of me, the best place for that is just my website, which is um, tomsterner.com. It's just one word. Uh, and, you know, for speaking or anything else, I do it all the time. I love it. It's so much fun. So yeah, give me a call. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tom, for sharing your wisdom with us today on Deliberate Thinking. I know you've helped many people who are listening and especially me. Um, And hang on, everybody, till next week where we discuss another habit um, that may just change your life. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. 
Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next time on the Voice America Variety Channel and discover how to find your new happy place. Oh,